0: I am sure glad you're here. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm glad that, well, I think I have a pretty good idea of why you're here, which is to meet with Christ in his word. And I'm glad for that, especially. Uh, You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to remind you, too, that on uh, Sunday nights, usually we have uh, prayer. Tonight we don't, though you're allowed to pray while you're here. Um, But you can come still at the same time as you would for prayer at 6.30 tonight. We'll have uh, another uh, meeting about, kind of an informational meeting about Israel. John Somerville is going to teach us stuff about Israel. And uh, you get to sign up to go on a trip there this spring. But not with John. If you want to sign up for that trip, see Robin. Um, And we'd we'd love to send you. We'd love you guys to go and and see the Holy Land. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 1, Paul writes, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of, you, of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we trust you. We trust that you have given it to us, that it's profitable for doctrine and and our instruction, and that we may be thoroughly and fully equipped for every good work. We we ask for understanding, spiritual understanding of these things. We ask that we would have eyes to see just how much we're cared for, um, that we would see the love of God for us, And that we would be mindful of the dangers of our enemy that transforms himself as an angel of light. We pray for discernment, for spiritual protection. We pray that we would be moved uh, as a result of spending time in your word to cling tighter to the anchor of our souls. That we would be drawn to Christ and have more, um, more commitment, more conviction to stay ever close to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, what we're kind of talking about here in this passage, and what we learn in this passage, is that is how to discern between true and false spiritual leadership. Uh, we learn it in kind of a roundabout way, and it's not always easy to follow Paul's train of thought necessarily. But what what he's expressing in this passage is, of course, his concern for this church that he loves so deeply, and, and we see that he's afraid. That this church that he loves, they might be led astray by false prophets who preach a different Jesus, a false Christ. We see Paul once more as the spiritual father to the Corinthians, this time taking on the role of father of the bride, betrothing the church to Christ, and he's worried that this willful daughter of his will have plans of her own and be easily deceived by those who don't actually have her best interest in mind. He passionately defends his apostleship, not by showing traditional credentials. Those went out the window a long time ago in 2 Corinthians, I'm sure you've noticed. But he shows how much he sacrificed, how deeply he had loved the Corinthians. He spends time next highlighting the danger of deceptive leaders and, the misleading, and their misleading message, which, um, which pretends to be the gospel of Christ, but is in fact at least a little bit satanic, according to Paul here. Yikes. Paul warns the Corinthians not to be deceived by such false teachers and to remain steadfast in their faith in the true gospel. So this passage is made up really of three parts. First, Paul sets the stage by expressing the desired hope for the Corinthians. He says, I want you to be betrothed to Christ. I want you to be married to Jesus. And and when that time comes, when he comes to receive you to himself, I want you to be that pure, spotless bride he He cares for their sincere devotion, that their hearts would be tied to Jesus. Second, he meticulously outlines his qualifications as an apostle and underscores the deep love he holds for the Corinthians. He shows them that they are loved. They belong to a loved church. He emphasizes the sacrifices he had made for their sake and for the sake of the gospel, and showing that his ministry is the real thing. he's not in it for the money. And then third, Paul issues a strong warning to the Corinthians about the imminent threat of deception posed by these false apostles and leaders, and their leader, Satan. He emphasizes the crucial need in, for discernment and unwavering spiritual vigilance in safeguarding their faith. While this is to a specific church at a specific time that none of us have met, um, we see some principles that are ready to, for us to take hold of. The first, most obvious, of course, is that we are the church just as much as Corinth was. And this is our family. This is the body to which we belong. And as such, we too are betrothed to Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing in Paul's argument is how well he cared for them. He wants to tell them, I really did this job well, and I cared for your spiritual well-being better than those guys did that you're following now. And, and in his relationship with the Corinthians, Paul is an imitator of Christ. So we see in his example, not only a standard for ministry that all those in ministry should aspire to, but when we see how well Paul cared for the Corinthians, we really see how well Christ cares for us. When we see Paul's love, we want to look past Paul to the one Paul's imitating. And then lastly, the dangers that the Corinthians face are still dangerous. The application just leaps off the, off the page. The road is still narrow that leads to life. Temptations have not grown weaker in the last 2,000 years. Satan still disguises himself as an angel of light. And so we look at our hope and how well we're loved, and then we look to the dangers and we stand guard. So let's go back to verse 1 uh, to try and take apart what Paul's trying to say here. He says in verse 1, O oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly or foolishness, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ it's only a couple small verses, but you can tell, I think, that this is a big idea. You are betrothed or engaged to Christ. Now, that bit about bearing in a little folly, that's Paul's way of saying, okay, I'm going to sound kind of dumb in, the sec- in a second here, but just, just listen. Bear with me. The folly, it's not about being betrothed to Christ. That's not the foolishness that he's asking them to bear with them. that's That's wisdom. It's the part where he starts talking about how much he's done for them. The folly is the part where he talks about his own qualifications, his own sacrifices, because let's face it, the kind of person who has to always tell you all the things that they do and all the things that they've done is engaging in a kind of foolishness. That's a foolish way to talk. Paul admits it before he starts, and, and he says, I know it's stupid to talk about yourself. I know it's stupid to talk about how much I serve and how much I sacrifice, but it's foolish behavior, but I hope you can bear with me for the sake of the argument, because I need to show you how different true legitimate ministry is when it's done for Christ rather than when it's done for selfish reasons. All that's coming up, but I want to focus in on verse two especially, even though it's only one verse. It's key, not only to this chapter, but really the whole relationship that Paul has with the church. And he says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Godly, Jealousy may not be something you're familiar with, especially if you have experience with ungodly jealousy. We equate jealousy with envy, and that's not entirely accurate or helpful. Envy and covetousness, those are sins. Jealousy isn't, not necessarily. The best way you can understand this is in the context of a marriage, which is usually how the Old Testament speaks about God being a jealous God. He describes himself, God describes himself as a jealous husband. He's jealous ...for his wife's attention. And he has a right to that attention. It would be wrong to covet another man's wife. That's not the right kind of jealousy. But being protective of your own family... ...is just having a family. Jealousy, godly jealousy... ...is something that comes from the heart of God. In Exodus thirty-four fourteen, it says... ...for you shall worship no other gods... ...for the Lord, whose name is Jealous... ...is a jealous God. His name is Jealous... It's something central to who he is. God is love, and God is jealous. You can't have one without the other. It's the jealousy of God that compels him to pursue men and women who are far from him. He knows you are his. He knows that you are bought and paid for. He's got the receipts, and so he jealously pursues that which he has purchased. Paul is sharing in this aspect of the heart of God, being jealous for the heart of his church. Now, God describes himself as a jealous husband in the Old Testament. Paul kind of picks up on the metaphor, and he says that he's the father of the bride. He's betrothing his daughter, the Corinthian church, to Christ. He's jealous for her heart, not just that she is attached to him, but that she would be faithful to her betrothed, and that she would be all in, not distracted, that she wouldn't have any cold feet on the wedding day, that there would be no reason for her to be ashamed when the meeting of bride and groom takes place. His hope is to present the church to Christ as a pure and spotless bride, and he wants the Corinthians to live in this attitude of expectation for their wedding day. This metaphor is of, of a betrothal is, is pretty good. Paul is the matchmaker. He introduced the Corinthians to Christ. He instructed them on what this relationship is going to look like. He spoke often to Christ on their behalf, praying for them constantly. And as a proud parent who is happy at seeing their child with a good spouse, Paul is filled with hope that such that this good match is, is going to take place. You can really see the entirety of his ministry as part of this paradigm. Why would Paul take the trouble to correct the Corinthians and some of their bad behaviors? Because he's jealous for them with godly jealousy. He's jealous for their success. He's jealous for their hearts. He's jealous, jealously guarding against error. He's jealously, diligently helping them develop their relationship with Christ. He's passionate about these things. He's angry when he sees them pick sin over Jesus because he knows they're destroying themselves with that kind of behavior. And he's not, he's not jealous just because he wants to be able to hold up the Corinthians as a trophy of his own ministry and say, look how good I am at apostling. You know, that's his his hope for the Corinthians is that they would be faithfully in love with Jesus Christ himself. His hope is for love, and that is our hope as well. As the bride of Christ, betrothed to one husband, we, the church, are, are seeking Jesus, the lover of our souls. The hope we have in christ and seeing him face to face that's a good one and that hope hinges on this idea that we will be seen and not be ashamed the thing that paul is hoping for the corinthians ought to be every christian's firmly held hope that we are going to go to jesus that he is going to draw us in welcome us wipe every tear away from our eyes and love us in every way in the deepest most transformative way bringing us into his presence for all of eternity this is how we can speak about being betrothed to Christ rather than being married to Christ. Right? The commitment isn't, it's all there on his part. We, we're in a legally binding relationship. But let's be honest, we haven't seen him yet, right? We're still waiting for the fullness. We pray with the bride in Song of Solomon Draw me away. An echo of this lover's prayer exists in the church Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The church ought to be filled with this joyful expectation of the coming of the Lord, knowing that his coming means a wedding. We are to be expectant, ready, watching, lamps trimmed, desiring the arrival of the one who our souls love. That's the hope. And Paul is saying, that's the hope I have for this church, for every church, for the church. That's the hope. Jesus is coming, and we are betrothed to him. The second thing Paul communicates them as how well he had cared for them, how well, how loved this church already is. As Paul puts himself in this position of father to the Corinthians, any parent can see what Paul is feeling and nod in agreement. We want our children to love Jesus. We ought to be jealous for them with godly jealousy. We have dedicated our children to the Lord, and we're willing to work and fight and do what it takes to set them on the path towards him. We jealously guard their hearts from evil. We jealously protect them from harm. Paul has the same heart towards his spiritual kids. Now we see more evidence of his great care for his children. And to see this, I'm going to skip over verses three and four for now. We're going to come back to them later. So just sit tight. Um, But we're going to start at verse five and six and start to look at his care for his children. He says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. And you might put those things in quotation marks. He's kind of exaggerating the title of these false apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, for we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Okay, this is the part where Paul's going to be boasting a little bit. It's the reason he asked the Corinthians to bear with him in a little folly, because listing your own qualifications and telling people how much you work and how much you care and how great you are is really foolish behavior. And he doesn't really want to be that kind of person that compares himself with other people, but there is a showdown happening in the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. There were some people coming into the church, Paul says they're actually on Satan's team, so watch out for that, and they're luring the Corinthians away from the gospel that Paul taught. They're actually teaching a different Jesus. These people were really impressive. They were really showy. They sounded really smart. Paul calls them the most eminent apostles, and it's kind of tongue in cheek there. He's not talking about legitimate apostles who somehow outrank him. He's talking about these So-called extra-super-duper five-star apostles who are impressing the people with their intelligence and sophistication. And Paul is saying, look, I I am just as qualified as they are because I know God, and I'm sharing his love with you. Even though he's not as polished in his speech, he's not inferior in knowledge. The same verse in the ESV, it says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Because I've shown you that I know what I'm talking about. So now he's going to share examples of his knowledge, the knowledge that is superior to those fake apostles. And this is interesting because in showing his knowledge, what he actually does is show how he sacrificed and cared for the church. That's not where you would assume an argument like this would, would end up. If he needed to prove that he knew more than those guys, you'd think he would say something really impressive, some Bible trivia or something, Right. Uh, like how he understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Uh, But knowing that such knowledge is nothing without love, check 1 Corinthians 13, Paul proves his knowledge of the things of God by showing how his life is aligned with the heart of God. Knowledge about God and knowing God are two different things. Theological knowledge is not the same thing as knowing God. Paul could prove his knowledge of God by showing we walk next to each other. Me and Jesus have been holding hands this whole time and it's obvious because I care for you the same way Jesus cares for people, which is by putting himself to death. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? He's saying, was I wrong to preach to you and not give you a bill? It seems very likely that these so-called super apostles were dazzling the Corinthians with their preaching skills, and at the end of the sermon saying, that'll be $99, please. And Paul is saying, like, I've been a father to you, is showing the difference between, you know, preacher for hire and a father. You know, parents don't, hopefully, frequently complain to their kids that the kids don't pay well enough. You know, it's like, I really don't want to, I don't need to be your parent anymore. This, it's not paying the bills. Sorry. Um, you know, Paul is saying, did I sin against you in behaving like a father to you? Did I sin against you in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Hey, that sounds like someone else we know, huh? That's Jesus. So this was apparently much more impressive than Paul's free sermons to the Corinthians. Having someone come and say, yes, yeah, so, uh, we, need, we need you to, you know, sow into our ministry with the seed of faith. And they're robbing the Corinthians. Paul's sermons were free. If it's that free, it can't be good, right? Get what you pay for. Wrong. Paul's knowledge of the things of God, it was evident in this. He knew that the gospel can't be bought or sold because all the riches of the gospel have already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. This was really important to Paul, particularly where the Corinthians were concerned. He knew that they had hangups about money. About giving, about stuff like that. So from the beginning of his ministry in Corinth, he never accepted wages or apparently even gifts from the Corinthians in order to show that he wasn't like those who are using the gospel as a means of enriching themselves. We know that he, he worked while he's in Corinth at the, the tent making business. And he also collected support from out of town churches that were sending him as their missionary. Verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches. Not literally. Don't get any weird ideas. Okay? (laughs) He accepted wages. He explains, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. So I will keep myself. Because I'm going to keep doing it. Paul was a missionary that was supported by other churches. Churches that had received a grace from God that enabled Paul Paul to serve, of course, enabled that church to give generously. Giving is a gift. And these churches were graced in order to give, and they gave to Paul so that Paul could plant the church in Corinth and not charge the people in Corinth for those services rendered. So he lived only on the generosity of these out-of-town churches so that the Corinthians would never be burdened or have reason to suspect Paul of capitalizing on their spiritual life. Now elsewhere, Paul defends the norm of churches supporting missionaries financially. First Timothy 5, he says that the normal situation is that a person who is laboring in the word and in doctrine is worthy of wages. Getting paid isn't the problem. But Paul made an exception for the Corinthians. And in this, we see this extra care, this extra love by way of sacrifice. That Paul shows this favorite of churches, hey, I love you this much. And in this, along with his other behaviors, we see that Paul is modeling Christ. Think of Jesus, washing the disciples' feet, and then giving them a bill. Wrong. Jesus, washing the disciples' feet, taking the place of servant rather than master, and then saying, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Paul is doing the things. If you know, then you're going to do. Paul says, I surpassed them in knowledge. You know how you can tell? Because I'm doing the things. He's following the example of Jesus Christ. He had a right to have his feet washed, so to speak, but he came to them as a servant and they weren't very impressed with his behavior. But the thing is, Jesus came as a servant and the world wasn't so impressed with his behavior either. Listen to the words of Jesus again in Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and... Those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. When Paul says, I'm just as good as those guys, he sounds like a fool, because people that talk like that are foolish. But he's really just holding up the measuring rod of the gospel and showing where the line is. Jesus said the greatest among you is going to be the one you see serving. And Paul is showing them, I came to you as a servant. This is a point of pride for Paul. It's the opposite of these preachers for hire they're so fond of. He boasts that he's not getting good wages for what he's doing. He's happy to brag about this to other churches. No, I'm not not one of those preachers you hear about in Corinth that charges for the gospel. Verse 10, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows. He's saying, do you think I don't charge you money because I don't love you? No, think again. It's because I'm your father. Now, because Paul is imitating Christ here, we can reach out for these blessings and count them as our own. We are cared for to this depth. The Lord is not stingy. He is not greedy. He is generous and kind and willing to give liberally and without reproach. Paul preached the gospel freely because this is how Christ presents himself to us, freely. And he has reached out to you with the same generosity and care that Paul shows his favorite church. Paul has a great hope for the Corinthians that they would be betrothed to Christ. And he has shown them great care in being a servant to them and giving them the gospel free of charge, just like Jesus has given himself to the world. And finally, Paul has great concern for the Corinthians. He has a big warning of a great danger, and it's about these super apostles, so-called. And he he just knows that they, there are those in this church that are being led astray. He's worried. Go back now to verse 3. He says, but I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now in these two verses, Paul is expressing his concern that the Corinthians will be easily deceived just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning in the Garden of Eden. He warns them about the potential infiltration of false teachers who might introduce a different gospel and a different Jesus than the one he had preached. Paul emphasizes the importance of discernment, suggesting that they should not tolerate these false teachers and teachings and should remain loyal instead to the authentic gospel message that he had delivered them. But he's worried. He's worried. He's worried that the simple gospel won't be enough for them. Did you notice that word simplicity? He's worried that they're going to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He's worried that their minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The gospel is simple. Sin is complicated. Error gets complicated. We are at risk constantly of adding addendums and postscripts to the simple message that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We say God loves you and then put an asterisk next to it and write a really long footnote explaining the exceptions. We do the same things with the commands of Christ, the simple commands of loving neighbor, of worshiping God, of not being selfish jerks. That's in the Bible, right? We we complicate things. It's possible for us, just as it was for the Corinthians, to be uh, deceived by another Jesus or another spirit or a different gospel. A different Jesus is a Jesus that is not fully God and fully man, the Jesus who died for our sins and rose again and is coming again. There are different spirits we are told to test the spirits and hold fast what is good. There are spiritual Corinthians, just like there are spiritual people who are not Christians, who are not heading towards heaven. Being spiritual is a point of pride among many, but unless it's the Holy Spirit of God who convicts of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, unless it's that Holy Spirit that glorifies Christ in all things, it's the wrong spirit, and we're supposed to test them and hold fast that which is good. There are different gospels. There are different good newses, different messages that people will believe before they believe the message that we are sinners, separated from God, helpless to save ourselves, but invited by God to take part in a forgiveness that is already bought and paid for. And Paul says to them something similar to what he tells the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He said it twice, so I will too. Let's talk more about those cursed people. Back in 2 Corinthians, he says, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Verse 13 For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Just as Satan himself can make evil appear good and tries his best to do so, And just just as Satan presents lies in a very appealing way, so so these fake apostles can look very noble, even holy. They can transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, but their end, the destruction that awaits them, will not be in accordance with their appearance. It will be in accordance with their works. Deception is our enemy's main strategy. It's his number one game. He is called the father of lies. And all the best lies, the most convincing lies, the most effective lies, have at least a bit of truth in them. As an angel of light, and as the most subtle of all the creatures, you may be sure that the enemy of our souls will tempt you in a way that will present what is wrong as something that appears to you right, or that you can somehow convince yourself is righteous. What is evil will be presented to you as something that is good. The fake apostles looked good. False teachers sound nice. They probably make you feel really good about yourself. The things that you are tempted with appear to be solutions from problems rather than problems themselves. That's how they will be presented to you. Now, 2 Corinthians has already given us information on spiritual warfare. Paul has already written of Satan. We are not ignorant of his devices. We know what he's up to. We know how he does his work. Here's one of his main devices. It's lies. Now, I'm sure you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. The only way you counter lies is by knowing the truth. That seems obvious, but you have to know it. You can be deceived unless you cling to the truth. Paul is worried that the Corinthians would believe a lie, just like Eve in the garden. You are not somehow so holy and mature that you are impervious to all these lies, while the Corinthians weren't. There are places in your heart, because it is fallen, because you are fallen, there are places in your heart that want To believe things that aren't true as long as that lie will make you happy and tell you you're fine the strategy then is to know the truth so closely so intimately that every counterfeit will be evident you understand the counterfeit by knowing the real thing you as a chaste virgin betrothed to christ will not know your husband better by getting to know other men The way you will be most secure in the truth of Christ's love is to be the closest one to him. There are lies, there are temptations, and they can be effective in leading those astray who do not know their shepherd's voice, so stay close to the shepherd. In 2 Corinthians 11, 1-15, this whole passage that we've read, Paul passionately conveys these three significant aspects of his relationship with the church. And as we see Paul, we're trying to look past Paul to Jesus, who Paul is imitating we see that Paul has this deep hope that they and we as the church would be confident and faithful in our betrothal. The bride must be eagerly awaiting her union with her husband. Second, Paul showcases the extent of his care and love for the Corinthians, emphasizing his sacrificial service, his dedication to presenting the gospel without financial gain, because that's not what parenting is, mirroring the servant-hearted Jesus that we know and love. The evidence of his knowledge, of Paul's knowledge, was that he loved well. If you know God, you will love well. We walk away from this passage knowing that, like the Corinthians, we are so loved. God has given us all things we need freely. And we know that there's dangers for us just as there were dangers for them. lastly, Paul raises his solemn warning about the dangers of deception, cautioning the Corinthians against being led astray by false apostles, reminding them that Satan himself can disguise himself as an angel of light. And we know if if we do not cling to the lover of our souls, we too can be deceived. That's not a hopeless warning by any means. It's an invitation to tighten your grip on the one who holds you. Tighten your grip on the anchor to your souls. These three elements, the hope, the care, the concern, they they kind of weave together to illustrate Paul's heart for the Corinthians. And, And by extension, we see God's heart for his church. Just as the Corinthians are betrothed to Christ, we too are part of this divine union. We are to hold fast to the simplicity of the gospel, guarded by a profound knowledge of the truth that leads to love. We remain vigilant against the subtle deceptions that seek to lead us astray. I would say, ultimately, this passage calls us to cherish this hope in Christ, to appreciate the depth of his care, and exercise discernment to safeguard this faith. With his help, we will do just these things. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We love you. We thank you that we have we have eternity with you to look forward to. I pray that you would bless your church with the fruit from this sermon and the rest of 2 Corinthians. I pray that as you bless us uh, with, with hope to see you and with an assurance of your love, that we would respond by wanting to be even closer to the lover of our souls, to hold tight to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are content in the simplicity of this gospel, Jesus. Bless us. Amen. Amen. Please stand. <laughs>